Good afternoon. Today is Monday, the 6th of November, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, myself, Brian Gerrish. Delighted to be here with Mike Robinson. And we've also got Mark Anderson joining us from the States. Um, okay. Last week on Friday, we were talking about this GB News article that went out. Uh, Fury as more than one, as one million pro-Palestine uh, protesters set to march through London on Armistice Day. And the key word here was fury. Uh, there's clearly some fury being built up or attempted to be built up, built up at the moment. Uh, here's Richard Tice uh, responding to Patrick Henry. Patrick Henry on Twitter saying, a right-wing nutter like you would just love a war between our police and Palestinian protesters. And Richard Tice uh, replying, so you're happy with their anti-Semitic chants, abuse and violence? Do you condemn Ham Hamas? Uh, and my question uh, for the last number of weeks has been, uh, have the have the protests, the pro Palestinian protests, been full of anti-Semitic chants and violence? Uh, let's look at another tweet from Andrew Neil. This time, calls for violent uprising against Israel, uh, plus anti-Semitic placards featured in central London pro-Palestinian protests yet again today. So he tweeted this out on Saturday. A woman in Trafalgar Square with a placard showing image of Star of David being thrown in a dustbin. Slogan: Let's keep the world clean. Demonstrators allowed to take over nearby Charing Cross Station, shouting River to the Sea, a destruction of Israel chant. Uh, banner depicted swastika and Israeli flag with the caption, if I don't steal it, somebody else is going to steal it, Israeli proverb. So the narrative uh, from certain people is that uh, what was going on in the protests over the last number of weeks has been uh, the uh, language of violence and the language of extremism. So um, we thought we needed to find out exactly what the situation is. Uh, Brian and I went, therefore, on Saturday. Uh, we met up with Ben Rubin uh, to uh, go and have a look and see what was actually going on uh, in Trafalgar Square on Saturday. Uh, and uh, well, really, the picture was somewhat different. Uh, quite a number of thousands of people there uh, of all kinds. Uh, the banners largely uh, there were some banners uh, that were... Well, we got some images of, of some of the other banners. Yes, we got some banners that were perhaps perceived to be uh, more extreme, but actually the majority was stop the genocide and this type of uh, narrative. Uh, then we've got one here from the Israeli Committee Against House, Con House Demolitions. Uh, they were represented at the uh, protest on Saturday. Another one here, Jews Against the War on Gaza. Uh, represented at the protest on Saturday. Um, so really the the narrative that we have been presented with in the mainstream press is not correct. Uh, and uh, we want to demonstrate that now in the next few minutes because uh, this is what we witnessed. And we also want to dig into uh, why people would want to distort what the reality is. But uh, let's have a look at the demonstration in Trafalgar Square. This is a, a video uh, just giving a feel for the number of people. And I will say that uh, Mike and myself and Ben Rubin split up at one point. We took ourselves as individuals into the middle of that crowd in order to speak to people and get some interviews for the UK column today. Uh, let's have a look at what it looked like. So there we are. As individuals, we took ourselves into that crowd. We had nothing to identify us. We weren't uh, carrying anything which identified us as UK column, but we took the opportunity to walk up to people to ask them why they were there and to see what response. I took quite a lot of little video clips and we're going to play three of those clips now. Very different people, very different uh, uh, comments in some ways, but of course what everybody was desperate to do was to stop the violence in uh, Gaza as soon as possible. So let's listen to the... 
Well, we should just say these are audio clips with some with some images over them because yeah. we were mainly just recording an audio. But let's have a look at the first one. So I've come over to um, Nelson's column, and I'm with a family, I think. Yeah, two families. Two, fam <laughs> two families. So I, I'm going to start off with you, if I may. Tell me why you're here. What are you concerned about, and why have you come? Just from a humanitarian point of view, um, I think everyone's in agreement what happened on October 7th was a despicable act, but the response has been totally disproportionate. And um, at what cost is it that um, Israel feels the job will be done and how many Palestinian lives will have to um, die or lose their life to, in order for that to say the response was adequate and job done. Because all they are doing is just recruiting the next level of Hamas. And if it's not Hamas, there'll be another group tomorrow. 50% of the population of Gaza are under 16, their children. They weren't even born when Hamas was around. And um, people need to understand that. And now it's a case of, yeah, we know that what was wrong, done is wrong, but your response, and as a, as a sovereign country, that's uh, one of the fourth biggest uh, military powers in the world, they should have a lot more, uh, better means at their disposal to be able to deal with this. Okay, and what, what, what amongst the people here today, there are, there are some Jew, Jewish people who are Jews for peace, yeah. and I've spoken to them as well, what message would you give to people in the Jewish community? The Jewish, Muslim, Sikh, Hindu, Christian, it doesn't matter. From a humanitarian point of view, a lost life is a lost life. And um, we, we're all in unison. We're all what is sad is the conflation of being a, trying to criticize Israel and being accused of anti-Semitism. And that is held back a lot of people of the weary of saying things, but it shouldn't be the case. And it, there's many a march and demonstration in Israel against what they believe their government are doing. And even here, the Jewish voices that are voicing their voice in unison with ourselves and every other community here, saying it's wrong. And uh, it shouldn't be. But the sad thing is, yeah. they're being labelled by other Jews as being self-hating Jews. So that, that was a very nice family group. I took the opportunity to stay with them a little bit longer. I spoke to some of the ladies in, in that group as well, but we've only got so much time. We will be looking to put out all of the audio clips for our UK column viewers and listeners. So uh, look out for that in the next couple of days. Let's move on to the next one. Another viewpoint from somebody in that crowd. I'm here on the far side of the crowd and I've got two gentlemen and the the flag is Palestine, Islamic Human Rights Commission. Uh, oh, and that's the website address, www.ihrc.org.uk. Okay, can I ask you why you're here? We are here for Palestine. We, Islamic Human Rights Commission, is standing for Palestinians for a very long time. We are here to create awareness that Islamic Human Rights Commission support oppressed people of Gaza and we are against the oppression and occupation, brutal occupation of Israeli army of the occupied land. Right, so if, if, you ha if you could make the decision, what would you like to see happen today? The first is, is the immediate ceasefire. And Israel and Israeli officials should be tried, including United Nations, British government, French government, and Israelis, uh, uh, American, USA. They should be tried in a war, crim war criminals. They are the war criminals. They are supporting the genocide. The American, British providing the bombs to kill innocent children all around, especially in Gaza. So far, 4,000 has been killed by the British bonds and the US side provided. So they are the one who basically funded this genocide and they are supporting apartheid of modern age. Okay. Apartheid. 
thank, thank you for that. I've spoken to a lot of people already this afternoon, and amongst all the people here is a group calling themselves Jews for Peace. And they were very interested to speak to. Well, what would your message be to people in, in uh, Israel? Uh, the, the, we have no problem with the Jews. Jews are one of the very Abrahamic religion, very old. We respect them. Moses is one of our prophets. We have no problem. We have a problem with the Zionist entity, which is occupying the land. We have no problem with Jews in, uh, in even for thousands of years, Jews, Muslims and Christians were living together. So there was no problem. Since this Zionist entity came in to exist, the problem began from that time. So we have no problem with the Jews. Okay. And there are a number of Jews around here yes. and they support, we have rabbis here as well. So it's nothing to against Jews or anti-Semitic or anything. We are here for a peace. We are supporting the oppressed people of Palestine. Okay. They, yeah. All right. Thank you very much for that. Now, just add to that one that it was extremely noisy in that uh, demonstration and uh, Mike was able to clean up those audio clips. So if it sounds unnaturally clear, that was because we've had to do some work to make it properly audible for our uh, viewers and listeners today. So that was another opinion from within an organisation. Now let's go to yet another man speaking. No good can come out of this world. Vengeance cannot be the answer. It's not that this conflict started on the 7th of October, which is the narrative we get. Hamas started it and we have to defend ourselves. There is a long history before the 7th of October of occupation, repression of Palestinians and so on. I totally condemn what Hamas did in killing civilians and in taking hostages, but it didn't come from nowhere. The Israeli state has over 5,000 political prisoners, many of them held without trial or accusation. They are hostages in any other name. This is a dirty conflict, and Israel has more power, overwhelmingly more power, than any other actor in that situation. And therefore, I hold Israel responsible for what is happening and cannot see that out of this war, Anything but destruction and vengeance. They are recruiting the next generation of Hamas fighters. Right, thank, thank you very much for that. Now, your banner says Jews against the war on Gaza. Indeed. Can you tell me about that organization? Who are the, who are the Jews that are speaking out? The Jews, it, it's an organization called Jews for Justice for Palestinians. It was formed in 2002 at the start of the Second Intifada when Israel was saying and Jewish communal institutions were saying we stand by Israel, we're all for Israel. We said no, not in our name. And organizations like us grew up at that time, particularly in South Africa, Canada, Australia, France and elsewhere. And we stand with Jews who do not see this as providing safety or security for Jews or for anyone else. Okay, and can I ask, are you Jewish yourself? I am, absolutely, yes. And what reaction do you get from, there's a very mixed group of people here, what sort of reaction are you getting from Palestinians and pro-Palestinians? Overwhelmingly friendly and favorable. Dozens, hundreds of people have come up to me on demonstrations like this to say, thank you for being here. And all I can say is, don't thank me, it's the least. I, as a Jew, whose family lost many members in the Holocaust, it's the least I can do. So three, we found very interesting uh, people speaking there. We did select those those three clips for the news. We are going to put all the clips that we took in the day up, as I said, for people to be able to listen to. Uh, but uh, those are the sorts of comments that we were getting. And as we mixed uh, amongst the crowds, if we just bring a couple of images back, back on screen, uh, people were talking, they were moving through that very packed crowd. They were unbelievably polite. Some people had children with them. Uh, there were some banners um, that uh, came in with a different slant on them, nothing too excessive in my mind. But we're now forced to ask, 
are messages like this, which I've described as raw? Uh, is this to be hate speech in the future, which is to be banned? But uh, the clear message for people, um, really nice people, was that they were desperate for a ceasefire now to stop the deaths. They wanted an end to the killing of the children in the thousands in Gaza and the killing of children in Israel. And they were very happy to make their feelings uh, felt. But let's have a look at this picture, which uh, fascinated me, because as I moved over towards um, Nelson's column, uh, there at a local pub, I saw some members of the Royal Navy. They were having a drink and relaxing after their formal duties as part of the Cenotaph uh, uh, parade. Um, they were only yards away from the demonstration. They were completely relaxed and happy. And later on, some of those men departed from that pub and walked through the edge of the crowd. And my point is that, of course, that crowd cannot have been the immensely dangerous crowd that GB News and others would have us believe if members of the armed forces in uniform were able to freely walk amongst them. So I'll leave you to reflect on that point. Um, but uh, the other issue was the police. And I will say that uh, the police were mostly okay when we left, and that was before the interaction and altercation with the police started. Um, we also met some police who'd come from Wales. They'd been drafted in for Wales. They were exceptionally friendly and polite. But I have to say that members of what I believe were the tactical support group were sullen. They were very hostile and they treated anybody who tried to speak to them with utter contempt. I was actually appalled. And I'm going to say it was obvious to me that they were fearful. And this is why they were so aggressive. Uh, I believe that they've got a head full of fear because it's been put there in police training. Now, on that issue, I'd like to take people back to 2015 uh, when we were getting very interested in stories which were emerging. Uh, the Metropolitan Police were going to Israel in order to receive training. Uh, this was one particular report. But if I go to something more substantial, um, I'm going to bring in this one here, International Business Times. Israeli army trained London police in tactics and strategy during the Gaza crisis, says report. And uh, the investigation report said that between one, the 1st of March and 31st of August, at least 80 personnel working for London's Metropolitan Police had travelled to Israel for a tactics and strategy meeting. Now, this was never pinned down. We were never able to pin it down, although there were some denials that have appeared on social media. Um, but uh, this report said that according to Iran Efrati, an investigative researcher into the Israeli military, Israel's training of American police is dangerous. Their methods are developed in a context where the citizens are seen and treated as an enemy to be crushed, highlighting the dangers of US police being trained by Israel. Efrati, who has served in the Israeli army, explains in a video that when your police come back, you become their enemy. Now, if anybody's got any further information on this, I would certainly like to know, but it seems to be very important. And I'm just going to add that uh, as we look to the post uh, demonstration reports, this was the BBC here. Um, it came up with a generalised report. It does t talk about the number of people killed in Israel. It talks about Israeli airstrikes killing more than 9,000 people. It includes a quote from the chief rabbi who said that the line between protesters supporting innocent Palestinians and backing Hamas have become badly blurred. Um, but in fact, there was no substance about the people on the demonstration at all. It's taken UK column to get amongst those people and to help them get their views out. Uh, this is the journalist who wrote that vacuous report, and uh, she advertises herself as a mum. And I just wonder why a Wimbledon mum would not care about stopping the killing of 4,000 dead children in Gaza. Um, but it goes on because this was the Sunday Express, um, my terror over race hate mobs. And this story is apparently about a 93 year old Holocaust survivor revealing that he's so frightened he's been forced into hiding. And my question is, is this a, a 93 year old man who is actually terrorized or is it a 93 year old man terrorized by his memories and his belief in deliberately alarmist and fear mongering headlines? Or maybe it's a combination of both. I'll leave the audience to think about that. 
Here's the Sunday Telegraph. Now it gets interesting because basically we've got a headline, Met Police Advisor Led from the River to the Sea chant. Apologies, this is a little bit blurred, but basically it talks about a, a gentleman called Malik, a, a, a solicitor who the police have used through his uh, this organisation, the London Muslim Communities Forum, in order to advise them. Uh, but apparently he's uh, now a turncoat. But uh, we've seen with the prevent strategy accusations that the police themselves were helping to ramp up violence. And I wonder whether it could be the same thing. But uh, the other comment we need to make here is that uh, we've also got this large image. Uh, this is the Duchess of Ed Edinburgh in what I'm calling Glamo Camo. And of course, she's been off to Canada. So the story overshadowed by the glamour in camouflage jacket. And uh, if we look at their um, Sunday Telegraph magazine, um, we've got uh, the front page here with a big image of the king turning 75. But oh dear, he's just got one son by his side. So this is very much pulling the heartstrings of the nation. But let's remember this king is working for the globalist agenda and the World Economic Forum, rather than looking after his subjects. But if we get into this magazine, then it starts to get really dangerous, as far as I can see, because we've got Zoe Strimple saying that Germany puts Britain to shame with its zero tolerance of anti-Semitism. And uh, I'll just put this on screen so you can freeze it. But there's some talk about it. But the key quote is, we're not going to accept anti-Semitism, whoever defines that, that's not going to be tolerated in, quote, any form whatsoever. So somebody's suggesting we should be more like the Germans. I wonder how many people um, attending the cenotaph, cenotaph would agree with that. But if we look at this article in more detail, uh, there's a mind game going on here because you've seen the serious headline, Germany puts Britain to shame. But look at the other headlines that are brought in alongside it. Fake nipple bra brings cheeky back to women's sexuality. And the other one, uh, my new man has let it be known he's a bit kinky in bed. Should I be scared? This is deliberately playing with people's minds. And of course, the newspapers know exactly what they're doing. So UK Column is going to end this segment by saying our experience of London, despite the troubles that took place later, did not match um, the uh, peaceful response from the majority, the overwhel overwhelming majority of the protesters. Um, of course, uh, Trafalgar Square was not the only place that marches were taking place. Uh, this is Glasgow, I believe. Uh, and, uh, well, Brian Simpson here tweeting out incredible scenes in Govan as punters come out of the pub to support the Free Palestine protest. Uh, so that was uh, uh, Glasgow then in uh, Washington, D.C. We had lots, and even as Israel, as was mentioned uh, by one of the uh, people speaking uh, in Israel, protests outside Netanyahu's home uh, is how it was being described. Uh, so, uh, you know, this is uh, clearly a global issue. It has become a global issue for people and people making their feelings uh, understood. So let's come back to uh, this. This was Douglas Murray. We po pointed this tweet out on Friday. UK Hamas supporters are now planning a million-man march in Remembrance Day. This is, of course, this coming weekend. Uh, and it, wasn't, it isn't on Remembrance Day. It's on uh, Armistice Day, which is Saturday. Uh, they plan to defame our war dead and desecrate the cenotaph itself. Uh, I'd like to know how he knows that. But anyway, the, this fear of uh, what's going to happen this weekend is being ramped up with a view to bringing people out on the streets. And he actively says at the end, if such a march goes ahead, then the people of Britain must come out and stop these barbarians. So he is actively calling for people out on the streets uh, to start a war between uh, the pro-Palestinian protesters and uh, the others, everybody else. Uh, this is becoming uh, sort of a race issue almost for, for some in the yeah. mainstream uh, Twitter sphere. And here is Lawrence Fox, if you remember with this. Um, so it's becoming something around our veterans and around uh, the need to protect uh, the memory of uh, people that have died in conflict on behalf of the United Kingdom. Um, this is Ezra Levant uh, pushing uh, out a tweet with uh, quoting Andy uh, NGO there. Uh, breaking anti-Israeli protesters rushing towards the cenotaph war memorial in London. So 
this was a group of people running towards the uh, war memorial in the evening on Saturday that were carrying Palestinian flags. We don't know if they were actually Palestinian protesters or if they were agents of the state uh, working uh, agent provocateur, as it were. We have no way of knowing that. Uh, but of course, the narrative comes out. We've got to protect the cenotaph. Um, and so the question then is, oh, and Nigel Farage, of course, again, our nation and its values are being destroyed before our eyes. The Met Police and the government will not stand up for us. I've never felt more depressed about our once lovely country. So again, this is really inciting uh, people to come out on the streets. Um, so let's have a look at whether this march is going to be allowed to go ahead uh, at the weekend. Uh, first of all, we've got Sola Braverman again. Pro-Palestine marches planned for Armistice Day. You don't want those to go ahead by the sounds of it, do you? The police are operationally independent. So it's up to them in the first instance to use their operational judgment based on the facts and the circumstances as they assess them to be to put in an application for a ban of any particular march to me as Home Secretary. And I will consider that application as they put it to me. It's got to based on their assessment and their belief that there's a risk of serious disorder. What we've seen in the last few weeks is tens of thousands of people take to the streets of Britain chanting jihad, calling for the erasure of Israel and behaving in many instances in a flagrantly anti-Semitic manner. To me, those are uh, incredibly uh, uh, offensive and uh, uh, is utterly odious behaviour. So that's what she claims, but she claims operational independence for the police and so on. Well, is that true? Well, apparently not, because here is a letter uh, that uh, was sent by Rishi Sunak uh, to the uh, chief constable of the Metropolitan Police talking about the Remembrance Weekend uh, coming up. Uh, I'm deeply concerned that a number of protests are currently planned to disrupt those acts of remembrance next weekend. The planned protests on Armistice Day is pr uh, provocative and disrespectful, and there is a clear and pleasant present risk that the Cenotaph and other war memorials could be desecrated, uh, something that would be an affront to the British public and the values we stand for. What evidence has he for this? Uh, but I'm not going to read the whole letter by any means. He then goes on to talk about the uh, legislation which the police could use. Uh, and then he ends by claiming once again that, of course, the police are, indep are operationally independent from politicians. But as a politician, he is basically demanding that the police take action uh, on this. Um, so uh, the, the incitement continues. Uh, here's Richard Tice. Just bring this back on, back on screen again. Are we happy with their anti-Semitic chance abuse? And violence. Well, I think we've sh we have seen for ourselves that that anti-Semitic, those anti-Semitic chants and abuse do not exist. Uh, then we've got Katie Hopkins here uh, and uh, uh, Tommy Robinson back on Twitter uh, just at the right moment uh, to uh, for, for this time. Wind it up. Wind it up. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, well, let's just remind ourselves of uh, the question here. And the question is: Are are these people our enemy? Uh, because if we look at this, never again means never again for anyone is the banner right in the center of that. And my question is, are these people the enemy or is this person the enemy? This is Rishi Sunak. Uh, what about this person? Is he our enemy? Uh, what about this person? Grant Shapps, is he our enemy? Well, these three have been absolutely funding the wars right across the world for many, many years uh, amongst with their colleagues. They seem much more of an enemy to me as Sarela Braverman, our enemy. Uh, how about Ursula von der Leyen? Uh, I think she's probably our enemy. Uh, Bill Gates? Certainly our enemy. Klaus Schwab? The question here is, who should we be considering our enemy to be? And if we consider our enemy to be the ordinary people, no matter what their views are, whether, they, whether we agree with them or not, if we consider ordinary people to be our enemy uh, when we're in the face of a regime globally, which is creating wars around the world, uh, and really doesn't care whether any one of us lives or dies, that has vaccinated us, locked us down, uh, and has treated us equally, whether we are Muslim, uh, Christian, black, white, whatever we are, we've been treated the same, whether we're living in Israel or in the UK, we've been treated the same by these people. And the question is, who is our enemy? And I think we are falling into a pretty major trap if we assume that the people that are ordinary people uh, coming out Trafalgar Square, wherever they happen to be, are our enemy. Perhaps it's the people in the suits and ties.
Brian, sorry. Well, um, I don't have any problem with this. We've had a, a front cover of the UK column from many years ago, which showed some of the people in a cartoon, of course, and identified them as domestic terrorists. Um, but uh, I, th I think it's very interesting that in our chat box today, people are talking about the press. They are now talking about the lies of the press. And they're also saying we are being played. That's what our audience is echoing back to us today. And that is absolutely right. And you're just about to feature one man who's played the audience for a very long time, Mike. Well, indeed. So let's bring Nigel Farage on screen again. What did he say last week? He said, now I've said, I've said it before, to great criticism that there are a lot of people coming into Britain with whom we have no shared history and no shared culture. The no shared culture thing, okay, but the no shared history, well, many of these people absolutely do share a history with Britain because there are mo quite a number of them are people that have been on the receiving end of British colonialism over the decades and the centuries. Uh, they certainly have a shared history with us. Uh, but the point here is that uh, you, these are not the enemy. Just to mention Katie Hopkins again, of course, a lot of this debate is about uh, this issue of the erasure of Israel. And it is amusing to me, ironic, let's say, uh, that many of the people who are concerned about the, the, the calls for the erasure of Israel are saying that this represents genetic, or not genetic, sorry, ethnic cleansing yeah. in the Middle East. These same people would be the people that would very much like to see immigrants removed from the UK and it seems like it's the same kind of narrative to me. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's how it seems to me. So I'm going to say we are being played. And let's just keep in mind, of course, that we are on the receiving end. We've been talking about it at the UK column for years. We have been at the receiving end for a very long time of applied behavioral psychology, uh, political psychology, mass propaganda. Just remember Spy B, a substantial number of people still do not feel sufficiently personally threatened. This was with respect to COVID-19. What happens if the same policy is used with respect to immigration or with respect to Israel and wars in Ukraine and wherever it happens to be? What happens to people? They start thinking the wrong kind of way, in my opinion. Uh, we are looking at the clash of civilizations policy. And what's really interesting is, to me, over the last couple of years, a lot of the sort of ide ideologies of left and right politics and so on have been set aside with respect to COVID-19 and uh, lockdown and, and these kinds of issues. And Ukraine, even we started to see people from the left and the right coming out to demand a, a stop, an end to the Ukraine war. Uh, this issue has put people back in their silos. And I think people really need to be very, very careful about that. This is the clash of civilizations policy, I believe, uh, that we're witnessing at the moment, uh, and we would be very foolish to fall for it. Yeah, I'm just going to add to that, Mike, and I've, I've talked about this before, but I think it's a really important point. Um, for people who are worried about immigration, and there are many long-established immigrants in this country who are also worried about uh, immigration, my key question to a very big and quite tough audience in the, mid in the Midlands um, was how did these people get in the country? And the audience didn't answer me. I had to answer, ask the question three times. How did they get into the country? I prompted, did they fight their way ashore? But eventually somebody said, we let them in. And I asked who let them in. And that audience could eventually tell me the people who let them in were the politicians. And I asked if the politicians were the enemy or the people that had been invited in. It then went deathly quiet. And this brings us back to the faces that you've had on screen. It's time for uh, people in UK to understand the bad decisions they have made, we have made over the years are now coming back to haunt us. And we need to deal with the people who are creating this mayhem, which is a combination of the politicians with non-government organisations and big corporations. And it's Pardon? And the media. And the media. It's very clear. So we're being tough today, but uh, I'm just going to say thank you to everybody that we reacted with in that demonstration. And when we came to go home, uh, it was exceptionally busy on the underground. We ended up packed into a carriage, uh, which was certainly full, all sorts of colours, races, religions, and everybody was still very polite and some of them talking about what had taken place. So the majority of people, very, very well-behaved, peace-loving, 
and this hype by the media to get people at each other's throats is truly horrific. Okay, let's uh, change the topic completely. Uh, and Mark, let's come on to education. Yes, uh, in Oregon, and we can get that first slide up here, um, COVID, in, in the wake of the COVIDocracy, the bureaucracy created by, by the COVID crackdown, and you mentioned that Klaus Schwab and company have been sort of the real enemy behind some of those things. Uh, Oregon took the brilliant decision, as the headline says here, this is a column in The Hill, a DC newspaper. Oregon just dropped all graduation standards, get that, failing all of its students in the name of equity. This is an opinion piece by Aaron Wythe, not necessarily the opinion of The Hill. It gives that disclaimer. And we'll move on from there. Uh, prior to the passage of Senate Bill 744 in the Oregon Assembly in 2021, the state's assessment of essential skills requirement for high school grad grads was sensible. Read and comprehend a variety of texts, write clearly and accurately, and apply math in a variety of settings. Students were required to demonstrate these skills. Citing the effects of COVID school closures, however, SB 744 required the state to review requirements for high school diploma options. And to address learning loss through the pandemic, the bill led to the suspension of Oregon's essential skills proficiency requirement through the 2023-2024 school year. But get this, last month, Oregon's State Board of Ed at the state level voted unanimously, no less, to adopt an additional extension of this suspension all the way through the 2027-2028 school year. Board members alongside Oregon Department of Ed leadership argued that requiring, requiring students to complete standardized tests both presented a harmful hurdle for historically marginalized students, a little PC there, and represents a misuse, allegedly, of state tests. And we'll just give a little more here, moving on from there. Since Oregon abandoned those essential skill requirements for high schoolers, graduation rates have skyrocketed. You know, there's really no hurdles or no standards, so they just um, march them on through. With a graduation rate of 81.3%, Oregon's class of 22 set a record for the second highest four-year grad rate ever recorded in the state. Unfortunately, this is not indicative of student skills. Only 43% of students in that year's grad class were proficient in English in an English-speaking country. Get that, only 43%. And less than 31% were proficient in math, the OAE, the, uh, that's the teachers' union, the o Oregon Education Admit, uh, Association, their mission statement is clear. In addition to representing its members, the union made a commitment to ensure quality public education for students in Oregon by advocating for policies that do not require students to learn basic language and math skills in order to graduate. However, this teachers' union, alongside the State Board of Ed, has placed Oregon, Oregonian graduates at a significant disadvantage while substantially lowering the quality of public ed. And I believe we're just about there. Um, yes, um, this what we're, what we're looking at here for this brief report, and I'd like to comment a little bit more about what you're looking at now in extra. This is the McGuffey Sixth Eclectic Reader. This is from about the turn of the century, about 1900, give or take a couple years. And most of the content was for sixth and seventh graders, uh, let's say on a U.S. or British level, roughly what they call middle school or junior high. And if you look at the McGuffey reader, and we learned about that lack of proficiency in English, you see literature that most high schoolers and even most college grads could not even grip right now. And so that, that shows not only how badly things are going now in public education in the States, but over the course of a little more of a century, little more than a century, the the overall education standards have absolutely and astronomically plummeted, um, and we'll see that later. When um, in extra, if I get a chance, I'll read some of the passages out of the McGuffey Sixth Reader again for junior high school people in, in the late late nineteenth, early twentieth century, and the the difference and the uh, the contrast is just incredible. So uh, it, it's really a sad note for American education. And this is going on really in varying degrees across the country. Yeah. OK, thank you, Mark. Thank you very much for that. OK, if you like what the UK Column does, you would like to support us, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, your membership would be very welcome, much appreciated and much needed. 
Uh, you could pick something up at the UK Column shop and please do consider uh, Christmas gifts this year. Uh, but share anything you find on the various platforms, especially ukcolumn.org and ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. Okay, we've um, got an interview for the 7th of November at one o'clock. That'll be Debbie Evans with Headley Reese and Cheryl Granger. This will be back on matters pharmaceutical and uh, related subjects, MHRA. So uh, watch out for that. That's tomorrow at 1 p.m. Um, okay, now the King's speech is also tomorrow. Uh, I'm not quite sure what time it is. Might be at 1 p.m. Let's bring him on screen. Uh, there he is. Now, of course, this is from the last uh, Queen's speech. Uh, where uh, then Prince Charles was uh, reading it out with the crown on the table. Undoubtedly, it'll be on his head this time. Um, so let's have a look and see what the uh, official press release has said on this. The speech will focus on putting in the right laws where we need them to safeguard the, the future prosperity of the United Kingdom. Uh, you believe that? Uh, you believe anything? As part of this government's commitment to create a better and brighter future for people, the King's speech will also include a package of measures focused on strengthening our society and helping people feel safe in their community. So what does that mean? Well, that means strengthening the state, making sure that the state is better protected. That means more of the same of the type of thing that we've seen in the last couple of years, shutting down uh, freedom of speech, making sure people are uh, kept in their, they're going to be feeling safe so they don't need to worry about all this draconian legislation that's coming in. Uh, the speech will build on progress to date, delivering record numbers of police officers ensuring Perpetrators of antisocial behaviour face swift and more visible justice. Seven bills will be carried over from the previous parliament to complete their passage in the next session, including the Digital Markets Competition and Consumers Bill, the Digital Protection and Digital Information Bill. And of course, that's all about making sure data sharing, sorry, that's Data Protection and Digital Information Bill, all about data sharing internationally and so on. It is about deregulating uh, many pretty uh, surveillance type uh, activities. Uh, Holocaust Memorial Bill, Economic Activities of Public Bodies, Overseas Matters Bill uh, are also on the list there. Uh, but as well as that, we will have uh, the Media Bill, uh, which of course is going to uh, lock down freedom of speech once again. Also the Mental Health Act Reform Bill uh, and some other bills as well. Uh, so that then takes us to Pfizer, Mark. Yes, uh, here on this side of the pond, gentlemen, um, Pfizer is looking at a lot of cutbacks. Now, Albert Borla, the CEO of Pfizer, recently spoke to um, Bloomberg Media to a, uh, I believe it's a weekly Wall Street-oriented show, and he got the royal treatment with nary a question, not any questions at all about the positive effects or downside of the COVID-19 vaccine. We saw that first headline there a second ago um, that there's been major cutbacks in Michigan, uh, not far from me in Kalamazoo. Uh, reading a little bit of this to get the basic facts, <clears throat> Pfizer's plunging COVID-19 product demand, get that, has spurred a company-wide cost-cutting campaign with nearly 200 jobs now on the chopping block just in Michigan alone. The New, the New York drug giant is cutting roughly 200 positions at its Kalamazoo, Michigan site, following a review of demand for its COVID-19 vaccine, Cominati, and antiviral Paxlovid, which is advertised all over the television all the time, a spokesperson recently said, Pfizer blamed the job, job cuts on, quote, lower than expected utilization for COVID-19 products, end quote. Interesting. The company does not take these changes lightly, Pfizer's saying, all decisions that impact people, processes, and initiatives will be made with transparency, transparency, compassion, and respect. Pfizer is also saying, we also remain committed to our patients and will continue to produce the COVID-19 vaccine to meet demand. Going on from there, uh, the move comes after the big pharma giant uh, unveiled a COVID cost-cutting campaign designed to achieve 3.5 billion, excuse me, in savings by the end of 24. Earlier this month, Pfizer slashed its 2023 revenue projection by $9 million, which the company blamed on a $7 billion increase in its projection for sales of oral antiviral Paxlovid, plus a $2 billion cut for its BioNTech-partnered COVID vaccine. Meanwhile, Pfizer recently confirmed plans, get this, to shutter its PPAC New Jersey facility 
So we have another shuttering going on in New Jersey, not just Michigan. And that's supposed to happen early 2024. Of the roughly 791 job positions affected, the vast majority of workers supposedly will be reassigned to Pfizer's New York HQ. The latest move in Kalamazoo comes after Pfizer threw down $750 million to upgrade that very same plant just recently in 2022. we got a little bit more to go to get the full picture of this. Um, following prior rounds of cuts in Illinois and Colorado, so not just New Jersey and Michigan, Illinois and Colorado, uh, Pfizer is downsizing in New Jersey according to a worker adjustment and retraining notification. The cuts in New Jersey are expected to go into effect early next year. During the transition period, the company does not have final figures on job losses. Uh, earlier this month, Pfizer said it launched an enterprise-wide cost realignment program after slashing its 2023 revenue, revenue projections by $9 billion, et cetera, and we'll keep moving from there. Uh, this is just something from last week as a reminder Updated COVID-19 shots are coming. They're part of a trio of vaccines to block fall viruses. So there is still going to be some demand. This is from Associated Press. Um, and this is the last thing from Reuters. I won't read this whole thing. But uh, suffice to say that Pfizer slashed its forecast for sales of its anti-COVID treatment Paxlovid by about $7 billion, including a non-cash $4.2 billion revenue reversal, and as it agreed to allow the return, get this, allow the return of 7.9 million doses of Paxlovid purchased by the U.S. government. Uh, it had previously expected Paxlovid revenue of about $8 billion. The company also cut full-year revenue expectations for the COVID-19 vaccine it shares with its German partner, BioNTech, by about $2 billion due to lower-than-expected vaccination rates. And when Albert Borla appeared on the Bloomberg program, um, they tried to make it out like the vaccinations so far have been so effective and have done so well that that's why demand is dropping off. There was no discussion whatsoever as to whether it's simply unpopularity. In other words, more people catching on that myocarditis and, and other uh, ill effects have been the results of these mRNA uh, injections. And Mr. Borla also added, this is notable, that they're going to come out with a mRNA flu vaccine using that same mRNA technology and also a combination regular flu and COVID vaccine, also mRNA. And they're trying to reshuffle things at Pfizer, shooting for up to $30 billion in profits by 2030. So there's a lot of reorientation going on, even though some plants are being shuttered. So there's much more to report in the near future, gentlemen, but it's it's interesting the way things are shuffling around and reshaping. Okay, thank you, Mark. Uh, now let's come back to the UK. And uh, well, The Guardian is uh, covering this. Uh, this is exclusive to them, I believe. A revealed plan to brand anyone and undermining UK as extremists. Leaked documents spark furious black backlash from groups who fear freedom of expression could be suppressed. Uh, so they're basically saying that uh, anyone who undermines, in inverted commas, uh, the country's institutions and its values, its values uh, um, are going to be considered to be extremists. Now, the question is, of course, The Guardian here has put an, uh, a photograph of Palestinians on screen. But the question is, is are we talking about uh, immigrants here or are we talking about a much broader section of society? Uh, because of course, or indeed the, us. Uh, indeed. Because indeed we us, have right? heard, we, yes, because we've heard this over the last number of years, particularly with respect to COVID lockdown and so on. Uh, that uh, basically any the, the rise of far-right extremism is something. And of course, anybody that was uh, criticizing COVID policy was viewed as being far-right in many circles. Uh, the Guardian article goes on to quote a, a Whitehall official saying, the concern is that it is a crackdown uh, on freedom of speech. The definition is too broad and will capture legitimate organizations and individuals. Uh, they talk about the internal departmental documents uh, marked as official sensitive talking about framing a new unified response to extremism. And Michael Gove is the key person whose name is attached to this. Sorry, uh, let's come back uh, to us. Uh, thank you. Uh, so uh, the question is, 
who is going to be labeled an extremist? Clearly, the Guardian is but, framing it in a particular way, but but actually, I believe it's going to be a much broader... It's going to be anybody that dares challenge any government policy yes. that's going to be looking to capture. Well, your audience had a sneak preview there, but thanks to Debbie for uh, spotting the Observer front page here. So the Observer revealed plan to brand anyone undermining UK as extremist. So uh, this is uh, part of the key bit. And of course, that's put alongside Gaza siege conditions. So don't worry, it's just a siege in Gaza. Nobody getting hurt at all. Um, but what, what have I said in the text there? This is a UK dictatorship. It's accelerating. It's coming into place very, very quickly now. And people need to be fully aware of what's happening and speak out against it while they can. Uh, but uh, of course, if we deal with people causing the trouble, uh, this is uh, from the mail, Boris Johnson visiting the kibbutz where Hamas massacred Israeli civilians. As he warns, we face a huge terrorist threat, uh, but he's on a solidarity visit to Israel uh, following the October the 7th attacks. I'm just going to label this. Let us remember that Boris Johnson, widely known across international press as the man who helped almost single-handedly destroy peace in Ukraine, he's now in Israel to support Israel. I think things are going to get very, very bad because uh, they never get good when Boris Johnson is around. So let's have a look at this little clip of Boris in action. It's a legitimate subject for consideration, but right now uh, we're facing a, the, the imperative to deal with a, a, a huge terrorist yeah. threat, and, and, and the Israelis need to, to be able to get on with that. Strongly, I disagree with those who try to make some kind of moral equivalence between what you are doing and what the terrorists Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Johnson, former Prime Minister of Australia, Mr. Honour to ask you at the Long Soldier Centre in memory of Michael. Uh, well, as I look at that video clip, into my head comes just look at the state of that man. I compare that uh, uh, scruffy individual, Boris Johnson, to the extremely smart uh, Royal Navy officers and ratings that we saw at the weekend. But of course, Boris Johnson, up to no good, almost kiss of death for the Israelis, and the impact is going to be back on civilians in Gaza. So truly horrific to see this. But of course, we shouldn't be surprised because these declarations of undying support for Israel from the Conservative Party over a great many years. Clearly, Israel comes before people in UK, which I think is a really, really sad thing for a British politician to really say. Um, OK, let's move on to Ukraine, because Ukraine has not uh, ended. The war continues there, uh, people dying on a daily basis uh, in Ukraine. Uh, but we don't need to worry about that because Ursula von der Leyen has been meeting with uh, Zelensky uh, in order to, um, with respect to the accession of Ukraine to the European Union. Uh, she released this little bit of video. Uh, let's have a look. You should not stand at the rate. But it's warm. It's not warm. under my umbrella, that's good. Yes, you again. I want to tell you how impressed we are by the reforms you've made in the midst of a war. You should never forget you are fighting an existential war. And at the same time, you're deeply reforming your country. You have reached many milestones, reforming your justice system, curbing the oligarchs' grip, tackling money laundering, and much more. And I know that you are in the process of completing outstanding reforms. If this happens, and I'm confident, Ukraine can reach its ambitious goal of moving to the next stage in the accession process. 
So EU expansion continues eastwards. Uh, Ursula, very excited about that. And I'd, I'd, well, I'd just add that if you, if you look at wider media reports, including uh, reports from Ukraine itself, they're all talking about the massive increase in corruption as, as Ukraine starts to fall apart. The counteroffensive has clearly failed. The death toll is horrific. That country is falling apart and we've got Zelensky holding on to power as one of the oligarchs, even turning on his own military forces. And we have to listen to Ursula von der Leyen coming out with this claptrap. It truly is sickening. Okay, so let's have a look at this headline that came, I believe this is NBC, Mark can uh, correct me later if I'm wrong. US, European officials broach topic of peace negotiations with Ukraine, sources say. The conversations have included very broad outlines of what Ukraine might need to give up to reach a deal with Russia. So now we're starting to see uh, discussions about peace uh, negotiations taking place because there's clearly a recognition that in fact the counteroffensive has failed, the entire offensive has failed, uh, and uh, Russia is not going anywhere anytime soon. Now, uh, the, the issue here then is um, uh, why could this not have happened 18 months ago? Well, as Brian has already mentioned, Boris Johnson was largely responsible for that. That's our government uh, of the day, and our government continues to push this uh, uh, war rhetoric. Uh, we need to stop that immediately. Yeah. We're almost running out of words on this because it's so obvious what's going on and who, who is causing the trouble in the, in the world. Yes. Um, are we back to Mark? We're back to Mark, yes. Mark, Georgia have you, voters. Have you got some sanity for us, Mark? <laughs> That's a hard thing to find, gentlemen. That's in short supply in this world. I, I understand you guys plugged this the other day, but I bring it up again for another reason. A very good interview, if I do say so, with Garland Fabrito, mostly due to him, posted now at UK Column, Georgia Voters Group has strong proof of major election breaches and the kind of proof they have uh, suggests that this stuff has been going on for quite some time and is happening beyond the confines of the state of Georgia. And moving on from there, the media, which has been calling people the worst names possible, if you even suggest that U.S. elections are not uh, are anything short of being pure as the driven snow, if you have any criticism of any substance or any real questions, you're an automatic heretic, an election denier, and you don't deserve to live. Well, all of a sudden, an about face, a big 180, a Connecticut judge orders a new mayoral primary after surveillance videos show possible ballot stuffing. And this gets right into what many people like Garland and myself and others have been saying all along. A judge on Wednesday tossed out the results, tossed them out of a Democratic mayoral primary in Connecticut's largest city and ordered that a new one be held, citing surveillance videos showing people stuffing multiple absentee ballots into outdoor collection boxes. All along, one of the huge criticisms, the huge vulnerabilities has been, especially during the COVIDocracy, the 2020 election, a multiplicity of outdoor collection boxes that no one had any idea who was controlling access to those boxes. People complained again and again and again on the principle that even if there wasn't any readily apparent abuses, that the situation invited abuse. And people that said that were hounded and, and told that they were crazy. But here we see this happening in real in real time, that these outdoor collection boxes create huge vulnerabilities that can be exploited. And the judge's ruling came just six days before the general election. This was the primary uh, preparing for the general election, creating a perplexing scenario in which voters will decide the outcome of Bridgeport's mayoral election on November 7th, that's tomorrow, and then be asked to return to the polls at a later undetermined date to choose the rightful Democratic nominee in the very same race. In his ruling, Superior Court Judge William Clark addressed the incongruity by saying he lacked the authority to postpone or cancel the general election. However, he said he had seen enough evidence of malfeasance in order to, uh, to order a rerun of the primary in which a, the incumbent, incumbent Mayor Joe Gannam defeated the challenger John Gomes by 251 votes out of eight, a little, little over 8,000 votes cast. The volume of ballots so mishandled is such that it calls the result of the primary election into serious doubt and leaves the court unable to determine the legitimate result of the primary, Judge Clark wrote in his ruling. So 
this is a surprising and very sharp turn. Now, what I did here is I dug into my files at home and the media used to do things a little bit better. On the left, we have Life Magazine, which was more left-wing internationalist, even back in October 1964. And there's a big article, Dirty Work on the Voting Machines. And at that time, the voting machines were these booths you go in and you pull the lever and, and the curtain closes, and then it, it was mechanically operated. They were known as, as the Rochester machines in many circles. And this article talked about in precincts across the U.S. in the 1950s, early 1960s, there were more votes than there were voters in various precincts. And this is another thing that's cited as election tampering evidence nowadays, but that is hounded out of existence. And on the right, we have a more right-wing view, American Opinion. That's now known as the New American. That's the John Birch Society's uh, publication. Back in November 1976, How Elections Are Stolen. And this is well before computerization which makes stealing elections much more subtle and sophisticated. So there were left-wing, or you might say conservative and liberal uh, exposés way back when of possible and actual election theft, things that are virtually banned now. So the Connecticut example is all the more ironic. And this is something we can talk about more in extra if you'd like, guys. There's been three major Supreme Court decisions going back to 1915, 1915, saying that Americans not only have the right to cast a vote, but they have a right to know, to be, to be uh, uh, you know, certain that their vote has been counted accurately and publicly. And so it's a two-tiered thing, not just the right to vote that is always cited without ever talking about the knowledge and the, as the ascertaining that your vote has been counted and counted accurately. So we can talk about those Supreme Court decisions if you like. So uh, Connecticut has done something very unexpected here that is uh, vindicating the Garland Favritos of the world. Thank you very much. Okay, Mark, thank, thank you very much for that. Thank you very, very much to the audience, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining us and thank you to those people supporting the UK column financially. We can only do what we do with your financial support. And let's leave by thinking about the children dying in the Middle East in thousands in Gaza, but also in Israel. It's beholden on all of us to call for a halt to the fighting and the bombing now. And uh, we need to take that action because clearly our politicians are hell-bent on more war and more deaths. Let's leave it there. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye.